Okay, so we're back. So let's get into this uh, tech executive murder. Talk Radio, live and uncensored. Details from the investigation into the fatal stabbing of tech executive Bob Lee in San Francisco. Tonight, police now say whoever stabbed him did not take his phone or wallet. And we now see the surveillance video showing Lee's final moments. ABC's DeMarco Morgan is in San Francisco. Tonight, new clues in the investigation into the fatal stabbing of tech executive Bob Lee. Lisa reportedly studying in these security images obtained exclusively by the DailyMail.com. This one showing a person, a possible witness, walking with a suitcase across the street from Lee while he was bleeding to death. The 43-year-old father of two seen on security cameras stumbling up to that apartment building after being stabbed in the chest. Location is 365 Main, crossing of Folsom and Harrison. Lee collapses to the ground, then musters the strength to stand up as police arrive, but he later died at the hospital. That area does have a lot of surveillance video. There's buildings and private businesses, and we are checking every shred to see if we can piece this together. We are out there knocking on doors and... and walking the, the pavement to make sure that we find every piece of evidence that's out there. Lee was found with his cell phone, which he used to call 911. And we are now learning Lee also still had his wallet. Lindsay, police would not confirm if anything was seen in the wallet, but we have learned that Lee was staying at a hotel about a half mile away from where he was found. Lindsay. Okay. So let's get into... more details about this, how they caught this person. All right. Okay, Give it a minute. Okay, so I'll just talk about it from here. All right, here we go. All right, San Francisco police arrest fellow fellow tech exec for stabbing murder of Cash App founder Bob Lee. San Francisco police have arrested fellow tech executive for the stabbing murder of Cash App founder Bob Lee. Lee was stabbed in the street last week. He was visiting the city from Miami where he lived. Police are yet to confirm an identity for the suspect, but Mission Local reports he was a fellow tech executive who lives in the Bay Area. Wow. It's unclear if the man attended the same tech conference Lee was in town for, but the pair was seen in a car together at around 2.30 a.m., moments before the stabbing. So what was his connection between, um, between each other? They had some kind of confrontation that led to the attack, according to police sources. Lee somehow staggered out of the car and was picked up on surveillance footage, struggling to walk nearby afterwards. The harrowing surveillance footage shows Lee stumbling through the city streets after being stabbed. He died in the hospital later that morning. Lee's death was invoked as the latest example of escalating crime in the Democratic city and led to the criticism of the mayor 
London breed. Okay. Let me see if I could still pull it. If I could pull, all right, I can pull it up now. All right, here we go. All right. <clears throat> Over the weekend, she was told residents. She told residents not to jump to conclusions about his death and said people will be surprised when the facts come out. A day after Lee's death, a former fire commissioner was attacked in the street outside his mother's house. A man has been arrested in that case. The fire commissioner said the incident and Lee's death were proof of San Francisco escalating crime problem. All right. What else? Okay. That's about it. It's unfortunate. Okay. But still, what is the connection between these two men? That's what has to be said. What is the person's name? But I'll uh, inform you when uh, new information comes out. Okay. Okay. So now we're going to go talk about this. Uh, well, I'm not surprised. Like I did say that uh, we have a government that is crooked and evil. Okay. And it's what the United States does. Okay. That's what they do. Okay. Here we are. Okay. League Pentagon, do Pentagon documents prove that World War III has been in the planning stages for years. Okay. When you live in the country that spends more than ne nearly all the rest of the world's nations on a single industry, it only makes sense that the industry itself would become a living, breathing thing that controls its own destiny. We're talking about the American defense industry, of course, at around 800 billion a year. You can see why the industry's leaders buy and sell politicians in order to help perpetuate their existence. But of course, a massive defense industry needs war and conflict in order to continue justifying the massive amounts of taxpayer dollars that feed it. And according to the Pentagon, documents that have been leaked online in recent days, war and conflict have been planned now for years. A recent leak of classified materials has reportedly revealed a wider range of information than previously disclosed. The leak includes documents marked as top secret and covers topics ranging from the conflict in Ukraine to security issues in the Middle East and China. The documents surfaced on social media sites on Friday, causing concern for the Pentagon and adding to the challenges faced by the Biden administration. The extent and source of the leaks that have been confirmed at this time, a new batch of classified documents that appear to detail American national security threats from Ukraine to the Middle East to China surfaced on social media sites on Friday, alarming the Pentagon and adding turmoil to a situation that seemed to have caught the Biden administration's off guard. New York Times report reported Friday, the scale of the leak analysts say more than 100 documents may have been obtained along with the sensitivity of the documents themselves could hugely damaging US officials said the report noted further, according to the report, a senior intelligence officer described the leak as a nightmare for the five eyes. A reference to the intelligence sharing alliance among the US, United Nations, 
United Kingdom, sorry, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Similarly to this previous leaked Ukraine war plans reported by the New York Times, some of the latest leaked documents have surfaced on social media platforms such as Twitter. These documents are labeled with one of the highest classification ratings, secret, no foreign, indicating that information is too sensitive to even share with foreign allies, right? Zero Hedge reported this week. Interestingly, the New York Times notes that one intelligence slide, which is circulating, features an alarming assessment of Ukraine's faltering air defense capabilities, but these leaks, some of which actually appeared on a Discord server devoted to discussing Minecraft and other usual places, include more than the initial content on Ukraine war planning, Zero Hedge noted further. Time, the Times noted, but the leaked document appears to go well beyond highly classified material on Ukraine war plans. Security analysts who have reviewed the documents tumbling onto social media sites say the increasing trove also includes sensitive briefing slides on China, the Indo-Pacific military theater, the, mil the Middle East, and terrorism. According to the report, an analyst has cautioned that the leaks thus far are probably just the tip of the iceberg and there may be additional significant leaks forthcoming or possibly have already occurred. Indeed, the development has the potential to become comparable to the Pentagon Papers of the Vietnam era. Now here's a tweet from Gonzo Lira, you may know him as Coach Red Pill, not quite. The Pentagon leaks also reveals the key regime is a money and weapons black box. Further, the Pentagon has no idea of the losses on the UA side, except what Keith tells him. It's like that girlfriend who abuses your credit card and you have no idea on what. <laughs> oh gosh, that's a good analogy. <laughs> okay, Kim.com, what the Pentagon leak reveals that is that NATO is already at war with Russia, that the Pentagon, not Ukraine, is in charge of planning every aspect of the U.S. proxy war, and that World War III seems inevitable. Mick Mulroy, a former high-ranking Pentagon official, expressed concern over the leak, noting many of these pictures of documents, and thus it appears that it was a deliberate leak done by someone that wished to do damage to Ukraine, U.S., and NATO efforts. His assessment implies that the leak may have originated from within Allied forces rather than from a foreign adversary. Yeah. Maybe that person has a conscience. Maybe that person is seeing the death and destruction and the chaos that is going on with this war. And maybe they're just trying to stop it. Maybe that's what it is. All right, next up, Elon Musk. Okay. Okay. Elon Musk accuses BBC reporter of lying about Twitter hate speech. Elon Musk branded a BBC reporter a liar during an interview discussing over whether Twitter's level of hate speech was on the rise. Okay. In Tuesday's car crash BBC interview, U.S. tech journalist James Clayton questioned Musk about an alleged increase of hate speech on Twitter since he had acquired the company. Musk then asked Clayton to give an example of such an incident. All right, let's get into it right here. Fair use. 
I'm just curious. What you, I'm, just, I'm trying to understand what you mean by hateful con content, and I'm asking for specific examples. Um, and if, and you just said that if something is slightly sexist, that's hateful content. Does that mean that it should be banned? Well, you've asked me. You've asked me whether my feed, whether it's got less or more. It, I'd say it's got slightly more. That's why I'm asking for examples. Can, right. you, can you name one example? I, I honestly don't use. I, I, honestly, I you don't, can't name I, a single example. I'll tell you why. Because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore. Because I, I just don't particularly. Wait, 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 you don't use the feed, yet you're going to question a man about the feed. Does that make sense? It doesn't make any sense at all. Why are you going to question something, a person on a particular... It's like questioning somebody on a particular subject, but you don't know anything about the subject. Or questioning them about... All right, that was a bad example. Questioning them about, well, I heard, you know, your employees, you know, they say like this. I heard they say the food you're serving there is, you know, is not good. Well, how would you know that? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't go to that restaurant. So, you know, I, to be honest with you, it makes you look dumb. So why bring up the question? You can, you're accusing me of something that you have no basis on. You have no facts. I, I only, well, well, I only well, look well, at hang my, on a second. My you said you've seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example, not even one. I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks. And I, well, I, then I how did you see that hateful content? content? Because I've been I've been using I've been using Twitter since you've taken it over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen the you, for you hateful content. I'm asking for one example. Right, and, and you I, can't I, give a single I, one. And, and, and I'm saying, I've, I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. Really. speaking during the chat, Mr. Clayton and asked Mr. Musk, we've spoken to people very recently who were involved in the moderation and say there's not enough people to police this stuff, particularly around hate speech in the company. Is that something that you want to address? Mr. Musk, what hate speech are you talking about? I mean, you use Twitter. Do you see a rise in hate speech? Just a personal anecdote. I don't. And Mr. Clayton said, personally for you, I would say to get more of that kind of content. Yeah, personally, but I'm not going to talk about talk for the rest of Twitter. Mr. Musk then asked him to describe a hateful thing. And Mr. Clayton said, well, yeah, you know, content that would solicitate reaction, something that is slightly racist, slightly sexist. Mr. Musk then asked Mr. Clayton whether he thinks that if something is slightly sexist, it should be banned. Mr. Clayton denied this was the case, but Mr. Musk pressed him to give specific examples. Mr. Clayton said, honestly, I don't. I don't actually use that feed anymore because I don't particularly like it. 
And actually, a lot of people are quite similar. I only look at my followers. Twitter, the Twitter owner said, I'm asking for an example, and you can't give me a single one. I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. You cannot give me a single example of hateful content, not even one tweet. And yet, you claim that hateful content was high. This is false. You just lied. But Mr. Clayton said there are many organizations that would say hateful posts on Twitter were on the rise, such as an Institute of Strategic Dialogue, before moving on to discuss the COVID misinformation. Mail Online contacted BBC to establish whether it will be responded to Mr. Musk's Mr. Musk claims that Mr. Clayton lied, but a spokesman said he won't be commenting on this. Yeah, man, I, I would I would fire the interviewer. You make the company look bad. Just saying, that's what I would do. Okay, moving on to Bill Gates. Okay. Yep. Okay. So here we are. Bill Gates beams with glee as mysterious explosion kills 8,000 cows at dairy, a Texas dairy farm. Wow. Bill Gates reacted with delight for after a mysterious explosion at a Texas dairy farm killed tens of thousands of cows on Monday night, according to reports. An explosion spread to the barn of the South Fork Ferry Dairy Farm in Dimmick, where the, the huge fire killed over 18,000 cattle and injured a dairy worker who was in critical condition at the hospital. Let's check this out. Fair use. It's estimated more than 18,000 were killed in a massive explosion and fire at a dairy farm in the Panhandle. This is a look at what is left of the farm now in Dimmit, northwest of Lubbock. One worker was taken to the hospital. Right now, officials still trying to figure out exactly what started that fire. Now, officials say a number of the animals survived Monday night's explosion and have been moved to a separate area. According to the Animal Welfare Institute, the blaze is the deadliest fire involving cattle since the team started tracking barn fires in 2013. Wow. Sheriff Sal Rivera says the fire from the explosion spread to the building where, the haul, where they haul cattle before bringing them to the milking area and into the holding pen. Because of this, Sheriff Rivera says only a small percentage of the cows survive. Your count probably is close to that. That's some that some that survive, and there's some that probably are injured to the point where they'll have to be destroyed, said Castro County Sheriff Sal Rivera. The recent surge in disasters surrounding food depots and key U.S. infrastructure is part and parcel of Bill Gates' plan to destroy the food ecosystem in America and force the you-know-what on the population by pumping them into food supply that he controls. Okay, let's look at this uh, tweet, this uh, picture, this video on Twitter. Explosion at the South Fork Dairy Farm in Dimmit, Texas. Last night, the fire spread into the dairy cow holding pens. An unknown amount of dairy cattle were killed by the fire and smoke. The cause of fire is unknown. Yet another incident affecting the food supply.
Just remember, this is the same dude that's buying up all of the farmland. Another one right here. Wow. Reports, InfoWars reports, however, according to the Sheriff Rivera, early speculation is that methane may have been indicted by overheating critical equipment used to suck out waste from the holding pens. NBC DFW reported only a small percentage of the cows at the facility survived. All right, here's a tweet from Blake Bernards. This structure is approximately 2,136,973 square feet and is a total loss. It is devastating for the injured and the lost dairy cows. Thoughts and prayers to all injured involved. all that wasted resources.
That is a lot of square foot. A lot. The incident marks the deadliest barn fire for um, for cattle overall, according to the Animal Welfare Institute, which began keeping track of bonfires in 2013. We hope the industry will remain focused on this issue and strongly encourage farms to adopt common sense fire safety measures. It's hard to imagine anything worse than being burned alive, said Margie Fishman, AWI Public Relations Manager. Dimmit residents told the KFDA 10 the fire smoke could be seen for miles. We look up, we're inside, and we go out and look through the window. We could see clouds, just like an explosion, said Belenke Laurent at Demet Residence. The whole thing was on fire, and it was crazy. Other residents expressed concerns for the dairy workers and the economy of the Demet, a town 65 miles southwest of Armello, with a population of less than 5,000. There's a lot of money that we have, and then there's a lot of milk <clears throat> also there too. So I think it's really crazy that what uh, crazy that this happened, says Alex Aguilar, a Demet resident. Resident Resno Sullivan said it was crazy because it was like something like the happening here is like the kind of things you don't hear about. So it was just like it was a mind blowing thing to hear. It is a kind of painful, it's kind of painful because it's like that's the kind of, it's like the kind of what we do here. And that's how we get our money for like the city and all that. So that's just a major drop for us, he added. This comes amid a mysterious spat of fires, explosions, and cyber attacks on food depots and processing plants over the last year. Disasters like diseases and heat waves have also been wiping out chickens and livestock and gnarled supply chains over the residual COVID policies that have led to food shortages in the US. And here is what Bill Gates has to say. Vaccines and our food supply solves the problem of vaccine hesitancy. You, let me read that again. <sighs> vaccines in our food supply solves the problem of vaccine hesitancy. Hmm. What do you all think about that? That is, that's something, okay? Just an observation, that's all I could say. You don't have to hear me say anything about him being evil. You just, I, his words speak for itself. Okay? His words speak for himself. Okay, let's get into this one right here. Biden regime quietly resumes biolabs program in Ukraine. Mm. During a media briefing on Friday, a commander of Russia's nuclear, biological, and chemical defense forces, Lieutenant General Igor Kurilov, declared that the Biden administration has resumed the biolab program in Ukraine. The U.S. has quietly resumed its dangerous biolabs program in Ukraine and is focusing on the, on the construction of top-secret new facilities and the training of personnel, the Russian Defense Ministry has claimed. GreatGameIndia.com Great Game reports a new trove of documents on alleged U.S.-funded biological programs in Ukraine was presented by the commander of Russia's nuclear, biological, and chemical defense forces, Lieutenant General Igor Kurilov, 
during a media briefing on Friday, Kurloff cited the protocol from a meeting dated October 20th, 2022, which was attended by representatives of the U.S. Defense Threat Reduction Agency, DTRA, and multiple Ukrainian officials, as well as figures from the Jacobs CH2M engineer, engineering company. The meeting reportedly focused on the resumption of biological research in Ukraine, which was paused due to the hostilities between Moscow and Kyiv. Now the project has been resumed with focus on renewal of legislative support, revision of training schedule, as well as conclusion and resumption of construction work. The Ukrainian language protocol stated, citing Jacobs slash CH2M's David Smith. The program was previously known as Joint Biological Research, but has been rebranded as Biological Control Research. The document indicated it cited concerns over an alleged Russian disinformation campaign on the issue, according to the Financial Times, a Zelensky advisor has said that Ukraine is ready to give up Crimea. Yeah, man. Biden regime is back in business. This is insane. Insane. Okay, well, let's talk about how the Biden administration is handling this issue with what's going on with Colorado. Let's talk about that. Block negotiations between state governments over how to address the shrinking water supply of the Colorado River, the Biden administration is now stepping in. The Colorado River supplies drinking water to 40 million Americans across seven states, as you see highlighted on your screen. But it also irrigates more than 5 million acres of farm and ranch land and provides power to some of the biggest cities in the West. But severe droughts are forcing some of those states to make cuts the amount of water it takes from the basin. After those states fail to come to a joint agreement, the federal government is now putting forward its own plans for cutbacks. Annie Snyder joins me now. She's a reporter at Politico who covers water issues, which, as we discussed, are just getting worse in so many parts of the country. Annie, talk to us about the uh, proposals being put forward by the Biden administration, because there are three of them with different ways to play out. What are they exactly? Yes, yeah, so what the Biden administration did today was take the first sort of formal step towards being able to impose unilateral cuts across three states in the Southwest, Arizona, California, and Nevada, if they're not able to reach a deal, as you say, and if the two main reservoirs that are fed by the river reach crisis levels in the next few years. So those states have been at loggerheads over how the necessary cuts should be doled out. California has, holds the largest rights to the river and holds the most senior, some of the most senior rights to the river. And under the rules governing the river for the past century, their waters would be protected. Um, cuts would be imposed on other states before, and they would be the last to receive the cuts. The other states, led by Arizona, but, but Arizona is joined by the five other states that rely on the river, have argued that that's not an equitable way for apportioning cuts because a lot of this is driven by climate change. And they argue that the, the dwindling supply that we're seeing now is a result of something that wasn't contemplated at the time that those rules were agreed to. And so they've pushed for a more equitable way of apportioning those cuts. What the Biden administration did today was effectively 
lay out what each of those competing proposals would look like. Uh, and it was a way of giving themselves the legal authority, the legal sort of cover for taking either one of those options should water levels fall to those crisis points in the next few years. We were just seeing images of the Hoover Dam as you were speaking. This isn't just about energy creation. It's about jobs, livelihoods, farming, irrigation, agriculture. So much is mixed into all of this. Which of those scenarios then, from your point of view, is the most viable considering all these states need something? It's, it's a really difficult question. Yeah. I think politically speaking, there is a broad agreement among six of the seven states that rely on the river that a straight the, the, the way that cuts are apportioned under the current legal rules is, is called a priority system. So it's effectively the people who put water to use first are protected before the newer users. And what that effectively does is protects water for agricultural users at the expense of cities. I think most people along the river recognize that that's not a politically viable approach over the long term. I mean, we're talking about a scenario in which Phoenix and Tucson and I mean even San Diego could see their cut their supplies cut effectively to zero um, from the Colorado River that is water, Colorado River water supplies cut effectively yeah. to zero while farmers in Southern California are continuing to irrigate hay that's being used to feed cattle and in some cases being exported I think that that is seen as not a politically viable solution overall. However, that is, those are the rules, those are the laws that were agreed to, and that is what is on the books right now. You know, it's interesting because you have old laws on the books and new information from the, the, that's being fed by climate change, right? I mean, the Western U.S. saw around a dozen atmospheric rivers in recent months, which relieved the drought in California. Chris Van Cleve was just here speaking with me. We both spent time growing up in Phoenix. He says it's more green there than he's ever seen it before. How is that playing into this conversation, just the... the, the the way that the climate's changing and changing weather systems. I mean, this is absolutely driven by climate change. The Colorado River Basin is in the midst of a 23-year drought. Climate change has shrunken the flows of the river by more than 20% over that time. And as the climate warms, scientists predict that that's going to continue. That trend is going to continue. You point out climate change is, is not just one direction, right? This year's wet weather um, is part of what we might expect from climate change. So it's not to say that there aren't going to be some wet years in it, but the overarching trend is absolutely towards a hotter, drier future. It's called a ratification. And what's really interesting about this is, you know, these seven states, it includes Wyoming and Utah, some deep red states. It includes California, mm -hmm. a deep blue state. And there is very little debate about that future. I think everybody recognizes that that is the trend that this is where this is going. It's just that how do you divvy up that pain is a very tough political question and one that the states haven't been able to come to on their own. And so that's why we see the Biden administration preparing to step in if they need to. But I think politically and realistically speaking, they are absolutely using this as a moment to try and push the states closer together, because what they really want to see here is for the states to come up with a solution themselves rather than having to act unilaterally. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I would agree, but let's see what's really being said. And here we go. Biden regime set to starve conservative Western states of water under new drought rules, 40 million Americans to be impacted. 
Once again, the Biden regime has taken aim at its political enemies, and this time in one of the cruelest, most vile ways. On Tuesday, the regime put forward measures that could greatly reduce water resources in seven Western states due to the severe drought conditions that have persisted for decades. As reported by Fox News, the Department of Interior DOI has proposed two potential actions to tackle the declining water levels in Colorado in the Colorado River Basin. The proposals involve federally mandated supply reductions for states that heavily rely on the river system, which serves over 40 million Americans and is crucial for the economies of Western states. However, the DOI's focus is on ensuring a sustainable future for the Colorado River Basin and by sustainable, and by sustainable that means the regime is more worried about environmental issues than the economic survival of mostly conservative states. Failure is not an option. Tommy Berdirio, the DOI's Depart Deputy Secretary, said in a statement recognizing the severity of the worsening drought, the Biden-Harris administration is bringing every tool and every resource to bear through the president's investing in the America agenda to protect stability and sustainability of the Colorado River system now and into the future. The 1,450-mile Colorado River not only provides water to millions of Americans, but also supports 5.5 million acres of agricultural lands, generates electricity for millions of residents through hydroelectric dams, and has significant recreational and ecological uses. The outlet reported the river system serves as water resource for seven states, which are categorized in two geographical regions. The upper basin consists of Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, and the lower basin, including Arizona, California, and Nevada. The upper basin states receive water from smaller rivers that branch off the Colorado River, while the lower basin states mainly depend on water pooled in Lake Powell, a man-made reservoir along the Utah-Arizona border and Lake Mead, a reservoir along the Nevada-Arizona border. The Glen Canyon Dam in northern Arizona and the Hoover Dam in southern Nevada regulate water flows from the respective reservoirs to the lower basin states, said Fox News. Due to the persistent drought conditions over the past decades, the water levels of both Lake Powell and Lake Mead have significantly dropped, approaching the critical dead pool levels at which the water can no longer flow from a reservoir through its dam. Officials claim that poses a serious threat to water supplies and the hydroelectric power generated by the two reservoirs, which is essential for tens of millions of Americans. It's notable that California, which has had drought issues for years, has not embarked on a plan to construct the um, desalination plants long, along its coastline to turn seawater into fresh water. Drought conditions in the Colorado River Basin has been two decades in the making, said Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner Camille Hamlin, Tootin, to meet this moment, we must continue to work together through the commitment to protecting the river, leading with science and a shared understanding that the unprecedented conditions require new solutions. Federal data shows that the level of Lake Powell has dropped to approximately 3,520 feet. And Lake Mead's level has dropped to 1,046 feet due to decades of drought conditions. The estimated dead pool levels of the two reservoirs are 3,370 feet and 809 feet respectively. On Tuesday, the Department of the Interior proposed a draft supplemental environment impact statement, which outlines the first proposed action to reduce water supply 
in the lower basin states. The water supply reductions will be based on the seniority of the entities receiving water from the reservoirs and the big blue California benef will benefit the most per Fox News. Such a proposal would benefit the agriculture industry in California, including the Imperial Irrigation District, a senior water rights holder that uses Colorado River water to supply about 500,000 acres of farmland. The outlet noted, citing a report in the Los Angeles Times, the action, though, would disproportionately negatively impact junior water rights holders like the Arizona entity that supplies water to Phoenix. So Biden is just playing petty here and is trying to pay back these states. Okay. Oh, what's good? Let me see. Hold on one second. What's good, G? Finally caught you live. Yeah, man. Enjoy. Enjoy. Uh, all right. Okay, what's up next? Okay, so here we go with this one right now. We're going to be going to Africa now. We're going to be dealing with this issue of military crimes now. Let's get into that right here. year-old Agnes Wanjiru stunned the country when details emerged that a British troop allegedly stabbed her to death and dumped her in a septic tank in Nanyuki. However, more than a year since the revelation, investigations have yet to commence into her death. This was revealed in an exclusive interview with the UK Minister for the Armed Forces, who says a difference between the two legal systems is the reason behind the long delay. The UK Minister, James Heapy, also outlined the Defence Cooperation Agreement between the United Kingdom and Kenya and the United Plan to Counter Terrorism in the country. Here now is that exclusive interview by Nginaz by entities. Tell us more about uh, the meeting that was held between you and the Cabinet Secretary for Defence. The relationship that the UK and particularly the UK's Ministry of Defence has developed over recent years with our counterparts here in Nairobi has become really close and it was great to build on those in our discussions today. They brought up the issue of Agnes Wanjiro, the 21-year-old lady who was killed in Nanyuki. What's the status of those investigations as of now? Um, what matters is that we get an investigation underway as quickly as we can. That investigation is dependent on uh, a legal agreement between uh, the UK and Kenya. Well, it hasn't been signed yet, but obviously it was a key part of my discussions uh, this morning. Uh, and I would hope that we can make progress very quickly indeed. I certainly want to. The UK has nothing to hide in all of this. The Ministry of Defence in London has no desire to hide information or protect people you know we are as disgusted by these allegations i don't believe that because it took a real long time to bring this up to light a very long time as you are in these sorts of international matters where two different legal systems need to align it is necessary to make the right arrangements first around how those legal systems will interact so how will that happen 
I don't think she's really asking the right questions. She should be like, so you're telling me it takes 10 years to get to the bottom of a civilian killed? 10 years? And you make an excuse about a, uh, you know, two legal systems is the reason why it took you a decade to get to the bottom of this? How about if this was a British person that was murdered? Would it take 10 years to get to the bottom of that person's murder? And you damn well know if it was a white woman, a white English woman, they would be all over this. It wouldn't take 10 years to get to the bottom of her murder. Uh, well, I think we spoke about that earlier on. I don't feel like I'm getting a clear response on how that will be so the solution will come in of the two well, countries. Well, I, I, I can't. So, uh, so I, I, I mean, I'm deliberately not giving you that detail because mm -hmm. it's not detail that it's either in the Kenyan government or the UK government's interest to expand on. But what I can tell you is that they are very easily resolvable issues. The problem is that there hasn't been an investigation thus far and we need to get on with one as quickly as possible. Directorate of Criminal Investigations officers from Kenya had made a deal with the UK military officers that they will conduct interviews surrounding the investigation, but it's been complained that it's since gone cold. So what is the status of those uh, interviews that are scheduled to take well, place? So the, I mean, those arrangements are still very much in place. There's no doubt about it that both the UK military and civilian police forces will be very, very happy to uh, be a part of the investigation and to interview witnesses on behalf of the Kenyan police. Once investigations are underway and perhaps these uh, perpetrators are found culpable, what happens with the process of compensation for her family? The suggestion was that uh, compensation should be paid to her family immediately. Now, I think that most people would recognise that until it is um, investigated and proven in a court of law, it's premature to be talking about those sorts of things. Does it pain you sometimes to see soldiers going awry? In generality, the British Army sets itself a high standard. Part of the British Army's license to offer. She should be. I don't think she's really asking. I don't sense. She's timid as a lamb in this investigation, I'm, in this uh, interview. Timid as hell. So will you be handing over the person Who's, in, who's responsible, or more than one person who's responsible for this? Will you be handing them over? That should be a question. Will it be expedient? Is this person still in the service? Do Can we get their documents to get Interpol involved? Can we get where they live? operate all over the world comes from that high standard. Do you think because of those high standards sometimes people are quick to defend the United Kingdom over such allegations? I don't think people rush to defend the United Kingdom at all. I think quite the reverse actually. I think that if people make allegations about the British Army, people are very often um, even more alarmed by it because they associate the British Army with a standard. Now let's switch gears and talk about the Defence Cooperation Agreement. Please tell us the status of what that is. I know it was signed between uh, the former CS 
Monica Juma and um, the Defence uh, UK Minister. Tell us more about it. Well, so the, the Defence Cooperation Agreement is a, um, is a legal basis that allows the UK to continue to train in and with uh, the Kenyan Armed Forces and it sets out all of the mechanisms by which we pay for that training, for example, and, uh, and the, uh, the legal basis on which we use uh, land and uh, a number of other sort of technical things. Uh, in the UK, it has been ratified. Uh, in the Kenyan parliament, we weren't able to get it ratified in the last parliament. Um, but my understanding is that it is being brought back to Parliament. Within that legal framework now, there's the training of the British troops and also then, sorry, the British troops training some of the Kenyan soldiers, yes. correct? Yes. And that's about 1,100 of them plus. Uh, now, with this training, there are concerns that have sprouted up from the African Union Security Council about uh, cross-purposes, cross about commercial protection of commercial interests, and establishing dominance in the midst of global competition. Another concern that's come out is the proliferation of foreign military bases. It would be the complete opposite from what representatives of the AU have said to me about how much they value the UK's effort across Africa to work with partner countries, to train their armies, learn together, because it raises the capacity. Finally, about the threat of terror to Kenyan soil, and not just Kenyan soil, it's, it's something that's spread out across the continent in different countries. Um, what is the UK's plan? We've realized that often we make things worse by trying to come to a country and sort it out for ourselves. And so the way to do it is exactly as you mentioned. You mean to come over there and get their resources and under the guise of you're trying to help? It's to give the training that is needed to successfully prosecute counter-terror campaigns. Man, please. This, this is just disgusting. Utterly disgusting, man. I don't, I doubt, I really sincerely doubt that they're going to get any justice. That's how I see it. Because it just seems like it's just word salad nonsense. He's feeding this female, timid as a lamb reporter. British troops who commit murder in Kenyan soil might have to answer for their crimes in Kenyan court if recommended by, if recommendations by a parliamentary committee are adopted. Recommend, the recommended changes to the Defense Cooperation Agreement with Kenya and the UK, which were debated by the National Assembly, are now await ratification. The proposed change was sparked by the alleged murder of Angus Wanjiru by a British soldier in Nanyuki over a decade ago. The president-setting move could now bring justice to the families of victim, victims like her. MP Nelson Coek, chairman of the Defense and Foreign Relations Committee, said it would behooves the host nation to make sure that anyone we've signed an agreement with strictly is made to adhere to the rules and regulations of the land, whether the country or constitutions of this country. Such cases of murder or degradation of the environment would not happen if Kenyan officers were training in the UK. We should allow that to happen on our soil. If ratification, the amendment would add murder as one of the offenses which would be under the jurisdiction of kenya which means visiting british troops that commit the offense will be prosecuted under kenyan law minority leader opio wandani said the matter of wanjiro is very traumatic and until the matter is resolved this country will not be at peace crime is crime and murder is a crime and we can't attempt murder among the crimes that host a nation is allowed to try 
The move seeks to bring an end to many issues involving the British Army that have gone undressed for decades. The murder of Angus Ridgeu is the most jarring and high profile to date after her body was found back in 2020, 2012. Her body was found in a septic tank. UK media reports claim that the British soldier in question confessed to a fellow squad member to killing a 20-year-old mother of one and dumping her body in a septic tank at a hotel in Ayuki. Despite the British government's commitment to support the investigations, no one has convicted, um, no one has been convicted of her murder, prolonged the much-awaited closure and justice of Wanju's family 11 years on. That's what I'm saying, man. She and is not doing any any justice to the family when you have a soft reporter not asking hard questions. It couldn't be me because I'll be asking some extremely harsh questions to the point that possibly me and that dude would be swinging blows. Just saying. I'm just saying. Okay. All right. They want Putin bad, man. They want Mr. Putin bad. They want him bad. That's what it is. Is a signatory of the Rome Statute and does have the responsibility to execute an ICC arrest warrant if the person against whom it is issued sets foot in a country or in this country in particular. Uh, President Putin is expected to visit South Africa here in August for the Summit of BRICS. So let's uh, find out what uh, this could all look like. Professor David Manier, uh, Center for Africa Director and China Studies at UJ. And Prof, good morning to you. I appreciate your time. So now we're stuck between a, a bit of a rock and a hard place, uh, namely the ICC and BRICS. Which way do we go? Good morning, Professor. Uh, good morning to you. I think it's uh, it has put South Africa in an awkward uh, situation. On one hand, it is a small country that it cannot enforce ICC's warrant of arrest. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Putin is an important member, a superpower country. And I think there's no any other country would uh, have the power to arrest him, uh, given the fact that Russia is a nuclear power. Uh, as, as also, it's not a member of the ICC, so it brings a lot of challenges. But uh, from an international perspective, it will be really tough for South Africa. But chances are high, in my view, that this meeting will go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry, I think you broke up for a second. You're saying the meeting will go ahead or won't go ahead? It will go ahead. Uh, chances are high that it will go ahead. How they're going to do it, one does not know whether mm -hmm. there is room for South Africa to apply for special uh, way of handling this meeting without getting into the ICC issues. It's something that the government has to handle. There is enough time from now to August when the uh, BRICS summit uh, takes place in Johannesburg. So uh, I think it, the chances are either it the meeting goes online where the South Africa won't be able uh, to do or expect it to arrest someone in Russia or um, applying special 
ways of allowing him to come into the country. I almost go back to the Omar al-Bashir issue, doesn't it, as well, when uh, there was that massive problem when he was in South Africa, there was an ICC warrant out for his arrest uh, as well, and seemingly nothing was done. I, I don't get the sense, Professor, that we really felt the wrath of the world against us uh, in that particular situation, but I, I can't help but think if uh, the Russian president were to come to South Africa in August and leave without any sort of uh, comment from our governments and uh, knowing the uh, global devastation that this war in Ukraine has created that we would get away unscathed a second time. I think um, the other issues for us to turn this and, and place it right square where it belongs. Uh, it seems that international institutions are used for geopolitics purposes. Mm. Uh, in this case, uh, the ICC itself is becoming a joke uh, in terms of its ability to enforce its own uh, rules mm -hmm. um, and the power that it carries. Uh, it hasn't arrested uh, George Bush on Iraq wars. It mm -hmm. hasn't arrested uh, Tony Blair uh, on Iraq and all other atrocities committed by these other powers. And selective way of applying ICC, it undermines the very then arrest Barack Obama for the death of Gaddafi, Hillary Clinton, Benghazi. Same institution. And it also sets up a country such as South Africa. And therefore, in the end, uh, it forces South Africa and other countries to really uh, pull out of ICC. We have been here before, and I won't see any chance going forward if the ICC and other bodies uh, continue to be abused by bigger powers for their own agendas. Uh, therefore, I think we need to be fair. Challenges on South Africa in terms of applying its own constitution, but on the other hand, geopolitics, to fully understand that uh, South Africa is also being abused uh, by bigger powers. Yeah, and I think you made a very good point as well with all those other names uh, being mentioned as well. South Africa can't now suddenly just jump on the bandwagon with the ICC and come in hard and fast uh, at Vladimir Putin when the ICC, as you quite rightly say, rather toothless uh, in a lot of this as well. Where does this place us as far as uh, Western geopolitics is concerned, Professor? Because uh, I'm curious, because uh, when we take a look at Russia and their relationship with China and both of those countries and their relationship with us here in South Africa, just by default as being part of BRICS, uh, where does it leave us uh, very firmly uh, geographically between the two uh, powers? Uh, but also, where does it leave us politically between Western uh, politics, such as the United States and Britain, and our very clear agreements with Russia and, and China? It puts us in a very awkward position as well. Indeed. I think South Africa's foreign policy is quite clear. Since 1994, I mean, this is a human rights-centered foreign policy. And I think it wants to continue applying such a policy in terms of um, pushing and really indeed uh, advancing peaceful resolution to conflicts, including one in Ukraine. But having said that, um, South Africa also wants to pursue uh, a foreign policy that is non-aligned, uh, an independent foreign policy uh, in which it is not uh, in any camp. It is not in the Western camp or the so-called East uh, China, Russia on one hand. Uh, it wants to be uh, right at the center mm. where it will have relationship with both 
uh, Western countries, um, deep relationship, as well as deep relationship with, the, with Russia and China. Oh, Prof, I appreciate uh, your time, as you say. And All they want to do is just, you know, have good relations with Russia and improve Africa. That's it. But you know, United States and Western governments, they want to end this war in a way that they come out on top. And it's not gonna it's not gonna be that way. It really isn't. Okay, because a lot of countries are fed up with them. They're fed up with their nonsense, they're fed up with their hypocrisy, they're fed up with trying to make an image that they're they're so great and so good when they're not. The tyrants absolute tyrants it's gotten bad from bad to worse don't believe me let's check out what the saudis have to uh announce let's say what they have to say okay there we go overseas announcing they are cutting back production. Now, this will affect gas prices in the near future here in the States. 12 News consumer investigator Sarah Grinelli spoke with an economist to learn more and has the details new at 530. Sarah? Gas prices are now expected to rise even as we head into the summer months, which is some of the busiest travel times of the year. Saudi Arabia and other major oil producers announced over the weekend they're cutting back oil production starting in May. That's going to have an impact on the prices that we pay for oil and that trickles into the rest of our economy. Economics professor at Providence College Christopher Limonio says this is going to have a major ripple effect on everyday life here in the United States. The oil price is rising which you know makes it more expensive to fly like you said drive. Uh, restaurants are going to be faced with higher food costs. And it will cost you more to fill up your car. In Rhode Island and in Massachusetts, the average price per gallon is $3.27, according to AAA. But the price of gas could go up over $4 a gallon over the busy summer months. You can't really change the way you drive, I suppose. Uh, you can't change the way you fly, but... Um, you know, one thing you can do, obviously, is alter your entire vacation plans. He says this is coming at a challenging time where the Federal Reserve has been boosting interest rates to cool inflation and bring prices down. However, he says cutting back oil production will come at a cost. Production costs are going to rise and businesses are going to want to essentially increase their prices to keep some semblance of a profit margin that's not negative. And policymakers that manage credit supplies and tax rates and things like that have, you know, not much you can do. Experts say gas prices typically rise about 32 cents per gallon in the summer months. In Seekonk, Sarah Grinnell. Yep. Yep. You can thank Biden for this. Things are going to get real at the gas at the gas station. Things are going to get real. People are probably going to go back to stealing gas. They're going to go back to doing a whole bunch of other things just to stay on top, just to survive. That's how it's going to go down. Sad, but that's how it's going to be. That's how it was earlier on with the uh, the pandemic.
Okay, let's put this up here. All right. Waiting for it to show. Okay, let's try again. Screw it. Okay. So, all right, here we go. We got it. We got it. Got it. Okay. All right. Saudis and other, other oil giants are now surprise production cuts. They're tired of the United States. Dubai, United Emirates, Associated Press, Saudi Arabia, and other major oil producers on Sunday announced surprise cuts totaling to 1.15 million barrels per day from May until the end of the year, a move that could raise prices worldwide. Higher oil prices would help fill Russian President Vladimir Putin's coffers as his country wages a war in Ukraine and forces Americans and others to pay even more at the pump amid worldwide inflation. It also likely to further strain ties with the United States, which has called on Saudi Arabia and other allies to increase production as it tries to bring prices down and squeeze Russia's finances. Production cuts alone could push U.S. gasoline prices up by roughly 26 cents per gallon, in addition to the usual increase that comes when refineries change the gasoline blend during the um, during the summer driving season, said Kevin Book, managing director of Clearview Energy Partners, LLC. The energy department calculates the seasonal increase at an average of 32 cents per gallon, Book said. So with an average U.S. price now at roughly $3.50 per gallon of regular, according to AAA, that could mean gasoline over $4 per gallon during the summer. However, books said there are a number of complex variables in oil and gas prices. The size of each country's production cut depends on the baseline production number it is using. So the cut might not be 1.5 million. It also could take much of the year for cuts to take effect. Demand could fall in the U.S. enters a recession caused by banking crisis, but also could increase during the summer as more people travel. Even though the production cuts is only about 1% of the roughly 100 million barrels of oil the world uses per day, the impact on prices could be big, Book said. It's a big deal because the oil prices work. The way the oil prices work, he said, you're in a market that is relatively balanced. You take a small amount away, depending on what demand does, you could have a very significant price response. Saudi Arabia announced the biggest cut among OPEC members at 500,000 barrels per day. The cuts are in addition to the reduction announced last October that infuriated the Biden administration. The Saudi Energy Ministry described the move as an, a precautionary measure amid at stabilizing, aimed at stabilizing the oil market. The cuts represent less than 5% of the Saudi Arabia's average production of 11.5 million barrels per day in 2022. Iraq said it would reduce production by 211,000 barrels per day, the United Arab Emirates by 144,000, Kuwait by 128,000, Kazakhstan by 78,000, and Algeria by 48,000, and Oman by 40,000. 
The announcements were carried by each other's country's state media. Russia's Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak, meanwhile, said Moscow would extend a voluntary cut of 500,000 until the end of the year. According to remarks carried by the state news agency TASS, Russia had announced a unilateral reduction in February after Western countries imposed price caps. All our members of the so-called OPEC Plus group of oil exporting countries, which includes the original organization of the petroleum exportation countries, as well as Russia and other major producers. There are no immediate statement from OPEC itself. The cuts announced in October of some 2 million barrels a day had come on an eve of the U.S. midterm elections in which soaring prices were a major issue. President Joe Biden vowed at the time that there would be consequences and the Democratic lawmakers called for freezing corporations with the Saudis. That's not a good idea. Both the U.S. and Saudi Arabia denied any political motives in the dispute. Since the, those cuts, oil prices have trended down. Brent crude, a global benchmark, was trading around $80 a barrel at the end of last week, down from $95 in early October when the early cuts were agreed. Analysis Guy Macomo Romos and Lloyd Byrne at Jeffrey said in a research note that the new cuts should allow for material reduction to the OPEC inventory earlier than expected and could validate recent warnings from some traders and analysis that demand it's weakening, that the demand is weakening. Christian Colts, a golf expert at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy said the Saudis are determined to keep oil prices high enough to fund ambitious mega projects linked to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030 plan to overhaul the economy. The domestic interest takes precedence in Saudi decision-making over his relationship with international partners and is likely to remain point of friction in the U.S.-Saudi relations for the foreseeable future, he said. Saudi Arabia's state-run oil giant Armaco recently announced record profits of $160 billion from last year. Profits rose 46.5% when compared to the company's 2021 results of $110 billion. Armaco said it hopes to boost production to 13 million barrels a day by 2027. The decades-long U.S.-Saudi alliance has come under growing strain in recent years following the 2018 killing of Saudi dissident Jamal Khazasongi, a U.S.-based journalist, and Saudi Arabia's war with Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. As a candidate for president, Biden vowed to make Saudi Arabia a pariah over the currency killing, but as oil prices rose after his inauguration, he backed off. He visited the kingdom last July in a bid to patch up relations, drawing criticism for sharing a fist bump with Crown Prince Mohammed. Saudi Arabia has denied siding with Russia in the Ukraine war, even as it's cultivated closer ties with both, both Moscow and Beijing in recent years. Last week, Aramco announced billions of dollars of investment in China's downstream Protochemicals industry. Yeah, man, this this is not looking good, and the Saudis are totally disrespecting Joe Biden. They don't they don't care nothing for him. Okay, their projects mean more, and uh, we are basically screwed. No other way to say it. All right. What's next? What's up? Okay. 
we have here. Yep. How many of you have gotten an update about the Palestine situation? Hmm? Haven't heard anything? All right, let's get into it. Second. All right. Okay. Wait. Yeah. Okay, here we are. Okay, all right. Uh, second right here. Okay. And also breaking out of East Palestine, the CDC has confirmed that seven of its government investigators briefly fell ill while studying the possible health impacts from that derailment. Their symptoms included a sore throat, headaches, coughing and nausea, which is consistent with what many residents there experienced. Many of those workers had their symptoms clear up within 24 hours and they were able to resume their work. Many people are not talking about this, though. They're very much vehemently uh, trying to keep this study under wraps. That's definitely what they're doing. All right. Let's get to the article. Seven of the 15 CDC workers assessing East Palestine chemical exposure got sick. Seven U.S. government investigators became sick while researching the possible health impacts of the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment in early March, according to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. Roughly half of the 15 CDC team reported symptoms, including sore throats, headaches, coughing, and nausea, similar to the conditions documented by East Palestine locals after the February their derailment. Investigators who experienced symptoms were part of the group conducting surveys house to house in the neighborhood near the derailment. Symptoms revolved, resolved for most team members later the same afternoon, and everyone resumed work on the survey data collection within 24 hours. A CDC rep said in a statement to CNN, all team members resumed data collection within 24 hours and impacted team members have not reported ongoing health effects, the CDC added. All right. An official familiar with the workers' illness told CNN that while it's unclear what caused their symptoms, members of the team found it suspicious they became ill at the same time with the same symptoms. Their mysterious illness come as government officials and representatives from Norfolk Southern, the company that had operated the train, insist that the air and water in a, the small Ohio town were not compromised by the toxic spill. 
That is a lie because you can see numerous posts on social media showing videos of how that water is not safe to drink. The catastrophic incident forced residents to evacuate their homes as fires burned for days, prompting widespread panic and causing many locals to experience adverse health effects. Many locals have expressed frustration over what they saw <clears throat> from of what they say has been a lack of real information. Frustrated East Palestine Mayor Trent Conway also ripped President Biden for visiting Ukraine instead of the scene of the toxic train derailment, calling it the biggest slap in the face. Well, he doesn't want to get sick. And he knows if he goes there, he risks possibly, you know, that's the end of his presidency, the end of his life permanently. News of the strange sickness impacted CDC workers comes after the Justice Department filed a lawsuit against Norfolk Sutland Railway Company on Thursday. Court documents show the civil suit filed on behalf of the Environmental Protection Agency is seeking damages for alleged violation of the Clean Water Act. Okay. Wait a second. Okay, hold on, hold on a second. Saudi. Oh, you talking about Saudi Arabia, uh, Curtis? Well, <clears throat> they joined BRICS. Uh, BRICS. Uh, there's nothing Joe Biden could do about that. Okay, you. They have oil. They have and they have nukes probably as well. So what, what are you gonna do? We're all screwed because we are we are the ones who are the peasants and we're the ones suffering for every action these presidents take, whether they're Democrat or Republican. And let's just remember that um, Democrat and Republican parties were uh, helping neo-Nazi Ukraine since 2014, okay? A bipartisan effort, okay? So Obama had his hand in this as well, so we're in trouble if the Saudis want to join BRICS. But that's all I got for now. I'm on Spotify. If you want to check me out there, um, look for Hard Talk Radio, live and uncensored. All right. Anything you want to know about this, is, this uh, channel is in the description box. Um, that's about it. Later.